Hi, I'm Sarah Gump from the Cedarville Stories podcast team. Professor Jay Kinzinger likes bikes so much that he rides them across the nation. He even builds elite wooden bikes. Hear his story on this week's episode of the Cedarville Stories podcast with your host, Mark Weinstein. My guest today on the Cedarville Stories podcast is Jay Kinzinger, Assistant Professor of Mechanical and Biomedical Engineering at Cedarville University. Jay, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's great to have you. Uh, Let's start with some very easy questions. How long have you been teaching at Cedarville University? Mark, I'm on my 21st year full-time, and I taught four years as an adjunct or part-time faculty prior to that. So you teach mechanical engineering and biomedical engineering. Um, What's the difference? Well, really, you use the basics. The, the, the biomedical is just applied engineering to one of the most complicated and well-designed systems out there, the human body. Mm-hmm. So we're just kind of targeting our, our efforts in engineering on the human body. Does Cedarville have uh, a connection with uh, the, the biomedical industry that allows us to maybe take these graduates then and get them uh, hired into the jobs in that profession? There are a couple connections. Uh, Dr. Tim Norman, mm-hmm. he is uh, the kind of the spearhead of the biomedical minor. And uh, his daughter, Grace, is a para-athlete. Correct. A world-class athlete. So he has a lot of connections in that realm. Uh, I used to work for a company called Ohio Willowood that is the largest prosthetics manufacturer in the country. So I have that connection to uh, one of our alum works there right now. So... We have a few connections. Uh, you also teach in the Industrial and Innovative Design Program at Cedarville. How is that program alike and unlike the mechanical and biomedical engineering program at Cedarville? Well, Mark, they're both very creative professions. Uh, I kind of think of left brain and right brain because the uh, industrial design students, uh, they're more into the uh, the form of the product, how it, how it looks, how it feels, the kind of texture, the lighting, the coloring, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mechanical engineers, they're more in the, into the function, and they do the analysis, and they make sure things work, but they don't really care so much about what it looks like. Um, so I have kind of a unique opportunity having a, a foot in those two worlds to you know, give the mechanical engineers a little bit nudge in the aesthetics department and and show them some things that might make their product a little more consumer appealing. And on the same token, I get to kind of encourage the industrial designers to um, design things that are actually makeable. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes that's a, a big deal. They can make something beautiful but impossible to make, or there could be some stress concentrations or things that would cause a failure that they're not aware of. So is it fair to say that you're really not the typical engineering professor because you have to live in the right brain and the left brain worlds in your job. Uh, that's probably pretty accurate. It's a kind of unique position. Uh, you said something interesting the other day when we were talking uh, that you are an accidental academic. What did you mean by that statement? <laughs> well, Mark, I wasn't exactly on the college track in high school. I was really into you know working with my hands and building bicycles and working on cars, mechanics, machining, welding. Uh, so I started out in the in the skilled trades. I started out as a tool and die apprentice and uh, worked in a, a small um, tool and die shop. And, and um, the first day of work, they warned me about this guy named Jim. They said, watch out for Jim. He's one of those Jesus freaks. Okay. 
but Jim had just a great sense of humor. And Jim loved to play practical jokes. As you do. As I do. I love right. to pray. So we, we developed this kind of epic uh, pranking war between each other and just had a blast. And I got to see that kind of uh, downside of Jim, the, the more um, playful side, I guess. And it wasn't long before I realized that Jim really had his act together, uh, more so than pretty much anyone else in the plant. Uh, he had meaning and purpose in his life. He you know, loved his family. Um, he would spend his lunch break uh, reading his Bible. And I started asking him questions. And um, his questions prompted me to get into my own Bible and start reading. Uh, and it was in that shop, kind of an unusual environment, that I received Christ as my Savior. It was, um, you know, just God just softened my heart and opened my eyes and allowed me to kind of uh, see the, the truth of the gospel for the first time, really. And, you know, it wasn't an altar call. It wasn't throwing a stick in the campfire. It was in this machine shop. Um, and 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things are gone. Behold, all things have become new. So that verse took on kind of special meaning to me. My, my life really did an about face. I started taking college classes in the evening and uh, eventually plugged away until I earned my bachelor's degree. Um, so then fast forward like a decade and a half, I'm working at Ohio Willowood. And uh, so in the early 90s, uh, the computer-aided design was changing from two-dimensional to three-dimensional. And Willowood is sort of on the cutting edge, and they adapted that pretty early. They trained me in 3D CAD. I went, you know, took several classes, became decent at it. And um, we built a house in Cedarville, started attending a local church, got to know some of the, you know, now my colleagues, some of the professors that were mm -hmm. working at Cedarville College at the time. And um, so they told me about a need that they had to convert from two-dimensional CAD to 3D CAD, and they needed some help with that. Uh, so they hired me to teach in the evening. So I'd work during the day and come and teach uh, mm. here. And I was plugging away on my graduate degree as well at the same time. Um, so in 1999, uh, they eventually made me an offer to quit my day job and, and come on board full time. So not kind of an unusual story. Would never have dreamed that I would end up here. But what a great story. And, and do you get to interact with Jim even today or... I've lost touch with Jim, so I, I, I'm afraid I don't really know what's going on with him. But what an impact he's had on your life, not just, not just uh, from a professional perspective, but a, from an eternal perspective. Yes, yeah. And I like to tell that story to my kids, kids, my students. You know, it gives them some encouragement. I, you know, I say, if you don't learn anything else from me, uh, realize that you're going to be in an environment like this, and you can yeah. impact lives like no one else can. We always have opportunities. We just have to be ready and take them. That's right. So what do you enjoy most about teaching? You know, I can't say it any better than Dr. Chuck Clevenger said it. You know, we're not teachers, we're disciple makers. Yeah. And uh, I have what I call my Davids, or my wife calls them my Davids. You know, every year there's one or two students that we just kind of click, and we end up, you know, doing things together and you know, they come over for dinner and, you know, they get to know my family and play with the kids. And uh, she calls them my Davids because literally, literally the first three years, they were all named David. <laughs> so, oh, that's funny. So 
she'll ask me, who's your David this year? You know, it might be a Joe or a Sam or a Ben, but they're always my Davids. And so uh, that is a really neat thing to see my Davids go off into the world and make an impact and raise a family and, and uh, you know, name their kids Jay, which I don't think any of them have done that yet. But, you know, there's still like, time. Yeah, there is. I can kind of encourage that. But uh, anyway, that that's probably my most enjoyable part of um, teaching. What are, um, do you know what some of your Davids are doing now? Yeah. Um, so a couple of them work for Honda, uh, R&D. In Columbus? Yep. Okay. And some work for Cummings in Columbus, Indiana. Um, okay. So uh, aerospace, um, you know, there's one that's become a pastor, uh, missionaries. Um, one of them works in Haiti as a missionary. So, you know, they're all over the place. For people who may not know you well, um, they may be surprised to learn that you also build custom-made wooden bicycles. How did the fascination for you come up where you could combine wood with the technology of a bicycle? I've, I've been fascinated with bicycles as long as I can remember, um, virtually since I was able to straddle a bike. I've been kind of in love with bicycles. I worked in a bicycle shop starting at the age of 14, you know, spend a lot of time on a bicycle seat and, and repairing bicycles. Uh, at the same time, my dad was a shop teacher, so I always had access to a really nice woodworking shop, and I developed a real love for woodworking. So I started seeing wooden bicycle frames on the internet and thought that'd be really fun to try that. And uh, so I ended up uh, kind of combining those two passions, woodworking and bicycles. Mm -hmm. um, I'd been building steel frames for a while, you know, brazing and welding steel frames. But I thought, well, that'd be an interesting challenge to make one out of wood. So about 300 hours later, <laughs> I had my first wooden bicycle frame and, it, you know, it rode incredibly smooth and it was just a, a, a really a neat experience. What makes wooden bicycles run maybe more smoothly than a, a metal frame? Well, the wood naturally absorbs some of the road vibration. And uh, these frames are actually hollow, so they don't weigh any more than a metal frame. Uh, so they're, they're still lightweight, but they're just really, really quiet on the road. Is there any special kind of wood that you use? I prefer walnut. Uh, it's just kind of a personal preference. It's not the, the only wood. Um, there's other woods that would be acceptable and some woods that I wouldn't try. But uh, I, I like the look of walnut. It's uh, easy to find in this area. So that's what I lean toward. Can, can you ride a wooden bicycle out in the rain? You can. Um, in fact, we've done a lot of riding on these wooden bikes. Um, you know, one bike has gone coast to coast, and that, that's not an obstacle. They're a lot tougher than they look. Okay, so I should ask, uh, how many wooden bikes have you made? So I've, I've made 13 single bikes, mm -hmm. six tandems, uh, four electric bikes, and one unicycle. Let's talk about the tandems because okay. there's an interesting story, I think, behind that. Didn't you take those tandems with your family on a trip? So there was one, one tandem that we took. We went to, to Europe as a family, mm -hmm. kind of a, a big hurrah for the whole family. And um, these bikes, all of them, they're, they're four single bikes and one tandem. Uh, they were designed to fold up and fit in a standard suitcase. Um, really did that sort of out of frugality more than anything else because— it was going to be very expensive to ship the bikes. So we had a 
former student that lived in Germany. And so he met us at the airport and um, put the put the bikes together. And uh, that's how our European trip started. Did you bring the bikes back? Yes. Okay. Yep. So you talked about um, the tandems. You talked about an a, a electric bike. That's interesting to me. Tell me what is an electric bike? So electric bike um, has a electric motor that runs off of a battery and you charge the battery and you can get up to 80 miles on one charge of a battery. And it just helps you, the more you push, the harder you push on the pedals, the more help. That so you have to pedal to get the benefit. You do. Yeah. So you still get exercise and you still get the benefit of, um, of, of exercise, but it literally flattens the hills. It's almost like the hills aren't there anymore. Yeah. Now for full, in full disclosure to our listeners, um, I was a, able to ride one of Jay's uh, e-bikes. One, actually, the last one I think that you made uh, on a four-day, 400-mile bike ride uh, from South Bend, Indiana to Dayton, Ohio. And the e-bike flattened the hills, and it really made my fellow riders very jealous of me because it was a very easy ride back to Dayton. Yeah. So I thank you for that. You're welcome. But um, is that one of your better bikes that you've made? I mean, it, it is. It's one of the more complex bikes. And we really got the, I didn't really know about e-bikes until we were on our European trip. We're riding as a family uh, along the Mosul River, and we're having our doors blown off by these old folks, you know, big smiles on their faces. And, and uh, they're, they're going faster and farther than we could. And, and we were relatively young and in good shape. And I'm wondering, what's in the water over here? These guys are amazing. Uh, turns out they're riding e-bikes, so they got the benefit. They can, you know, ride the kind of miles that they could ride like 20 years ago, at the kind of speeds, and um, so it's it's really a neat um, opportunity for somebody that's uh, getting older or somebody that wants to like millennials now are kind of ditching cars and they still want to commute, but they don't want to show up all sweaty, so they could ride an e-bike to work and. Um, that is a, a nice practical way for them to get around. And one of my greatest memories of riding your e-bike was going up a hill just west of Warsaw, Indiana. And I was going up that hill about 20 miles an hour and my fellow riders, they were, they were chugging and they weren't happy with me, but it, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. So um, at least one of your bikes, and maybe it's multiple, has been in the Bicycle Museum of America. Is that right? That's correct. That's here in Ohio. Is it still there? It is. Yeah. How did that happen? How did you get a bike in the in that museum? Um, actually, it may have been because of you. <laughs> it, it, somehow I got an article in the Columbus Dispatch, and you're pretty good about <laughs> arranging things like that. And so anyway, this, this article appeared, a nice full-page article on the wooden bikes. And somebody at the Bicycle Museum of America read the article and got in touch with me the next day, and they said, we want one of these for your collection. It's a, it's a hobby of yours. It's a passion of yours to make bicycles, wooden bicycles. How do you weave that into the classroom so that your students can benefit just like you have? Probably the most direct way I do it is through the Capstone Senior Design course. So I have my uh, seniors looking at a lot of different aspects of the wooden bike. It started out as structural testing uh, because honestly, I wasn't really sure how strong these things were. So they, uh, they would be doing things like um, uh, computer-aided engineering or finite element analysis sure. um, that we set up physical tests where we would uh, load the bike up in a lot of different configurations. Uh, probably the most interesting one was um, uh, 
we loaded a, a steel frame up as if you were standing on the pedals, put the, put the load through the bottom bracket. And the frame buckled at about 800 pounds, which is actually tremendous. I mean, there's no way you're going to, you know, under, under normal riding conditions, you're, you know, going to be way under 800 pounds. Right. So I was expecting probably less than that for the wood frame. Uh, so we put it on the fixture and started cranking the load up, and it went right past 800. It really? went past 1,000. Went past. It went to 1,500 pounds, and the fixture began to bend. So we had to stop the test. So it was literally stronger than the fixture itself. So that was sort of kind of startling. Uh, they've also done testing on the ride quality, the vibration that we talked about earlier. You know, how much uh, does it really affect the, the reduction of vibration? Uh, developing different manufacturing techniques, ways to make them more efficiently. And um, then they've actually partnered with the business department to do some studies on, on okay. business related to the bike. And your students, some of your students, haven't they made wooden bikes? Yes. Yeah. Uh, in fact, one of my students kind of started his own wooden bike business. So uh, Ben Tuttle, he was one of mm -hmm. our star runners here, and he's got a bicycle business now. I remember Ben Tuttle, he, he and some of his classmates rode coast to coast. They did. Uh, just um, after graduating. That's right. Yeah. They, uh, that ride for a new day that, that uh, they were doing, and they were on wooden bikes as well. So. So you talk about Ben and start him starting his bike business. It also has allowed you the opportunity to start a side business in bicycles. Tell me about your side business um, in bicycles. Yes, people saw these bikes and and from the dispatch article and sometimes in real life they they wanted to buy wanted to buy them and uh, the school of business uh, has a entrepreneurial practicum and in in two thousand seventeen. Uh, the dean of the business department, uh, Dr. Jeff Heyman, uh, proposed a multidisciplinary collaboration in partnership with some of our alumni. And I was the representative for the engineering department. And I just happened to have this uh, business I was trying to jumpstart. And we use that sort of as the guinea pig to start uh, our pilot. And uh, we focused on the e-bike, the one that you rode. That was our, our first project. We had five business students, six engineering students, and about a dozen uh, industrial design students uh, working on this. That year created some really interesting opportunities. Um, one opportunity was to be on a, a PBS show uh, called The American Woodshop with Scott Phillips. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we had a nice little uh, uh, show on that, and it re-airs from time to time. And uh, so that was a really fun opportunity. Uh, the other thing was um, we took our team to uh, NABS. Uh, NABS is North American Handbuilt Bicycle Show. Okay. And it floats around the country, but this particular year it was in Salt Lake City. And so we, we uh, went to Salt Lake City and we were exhibitors and our students had the chance to interact with a lot of uh, bicycle geeks and uh, we, we had a lot of fun uh, at, at NABS that year. Your your bike interest and your bike side business in bicycles has led you also to the opportunity to give workshops. Uh, tell me about the workshops that you're giving across the country on building bikes, whatever this is about. So what I've learned is that for every person that wants to buy a wooden bike, there's probably a dozen or so that want to build their own. It's just sort of that uh, interesting opportunity that people have to handcraft something. So... I pitched the idea of 
running workshops. I put it up on my website just to kind of fish around and see what happened. And a young lady in um, Silicon Valley, um, Megan, she saw the opportunity. She works for Apple and was very excited about it. Ended up putting out a company-wide email because I need to have probably at least four students to make it worthwhile. And uh, she was kind of flooded with interest, but she landed on uh, three more individuals. So a total of four uh, Apple employees. Uh, we uh, flew all our supplies out to um, California and, and my wife and I flew out and in Megan's garage, we conducted this workshop. Mm. And after three days, everybody had a bicycle to ride and uh, big smiles on their face. So the workshop was actually an opportunity for them to build their own wooden bikes. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. So you did that in Silicon Valley. You're also doing it later this year in Texas? Yeah. Texas, probably in Austin. Another, uh, there's an Apple complex right. there and, and Megan's um, email actually uh, filtered it to Texas. So they reached out and they mm. want to do one as well. What's a typical cost for a wooden bicycle? Obviously it depends on the hardware you put on it, et cetera, but what's a typical standard cost? It does. Uh, it depends. It varies a lot, but the, the basic frame to buy it uh, flat out for, for me to make the the bike frame, just the frame alone is 3500 So a little more expensive than a bike you're going to pull off at a Walmart or Kmart. It is, but you have to understand all the extra time it takes to make something like that. Sure. It's a, it's a one-of-a-kind of bike. It is. And that's the unique thing that I can actually custom fit the geometry for the individual. Um, I made a tandem for a elderly couple down in Florida, and, uh, you know, she was about 80 pounds, and and it was a step-through kind of frame, like a cruiser. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was very unique kind of bike uh, that they have, and, and they love it. Uh, what's the name of your, your bike company? Uh, Sojourn Cyclery. And how can people learn more about it? Uh, I do have a website, Sojourn Cyclery. Uh, so, and if you Google wooden bikes, I'm probably one of the first first or second hit that'll come up. Okay. So you, you do this on the side. So that, that makes me believe that you like to ride a lot. What are some of your most favorite, favorite bike rides that you've taken in the course of your life? You know, my, my biking bug, touring bug started, uh, in 1976, really. Uh, there's a, uh, endeavor called bike centennial it's for the bicentennial year. Mm -hmm. So a group of individuals pedaled their bikes across the country. And I was a freshman in high school, and I, I read about this, and I thought, I really want to do that someday. Uh, so life goes on, and uh, in 1981, I was somehow able to convince my parents to let me take my 16-year-old brother along on this um, Trans-American bicycle ride. Uh, I don't know why they let us do it. Uh, right. It may, may have been something like, you know, when a kid threatens to run away from home, you kind of, yeah, sure, right, you'll be back in, you know, a few hours. But right. And we took off and we were as green as grass. I mean, we wore like cut off shorts, which is probably the most abrasive, worst kind of shorts you could wear. Uh, had a leaky tent. Um, but we met people along the way that were on this trail that, that knew what they were doing and they kind of adapt, adopted us. And um, by the time we got to the coast, it goes from Yorktown, Virginia to Astoria, Oregon. And by the time we got to the coast, there were 26 of us. Really? So it was, it turned into a, and that's how touring really got into my blood. I just am hardly ever happier than when I've got a bike loaded with panniers and off on long distance rides. How many miles was that cross country trip? Uh, I think it was like 
5,000, a little over 5,000 miles, the route that they take. They follow kind of a historic path. They follow the Lewis and Clark Trail and up the Continental Divide. Okay. Is that the longest ride you've taken? Well, I, I, I did another Trans Am trip um, in 86. It was probably equal, but it was a northern route up through the Canadian Rockies. And, okay. and uh, then in rode in Europe with some friends in 89 uh, okay. for 100 days. So that one was actually probably the longest was the European trip. How many miles average per day? Uh, 70. You know, some days were 100, some days were less. You and know? you're probably going about uh, 15 to 20 miles an hour? Um, maybe probably slower than that, you know, with all that gear. I mean, 15 is, is really fast if you're loaded, you know. Sure. So probably somewhere between, you know, 14, around okay. 14 miles an hour, I'd say. And this is something that you continue today, and you've also helped your family get the bug, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, my son is uh, 16 now, and we've done a couple trips. We rode the um, Underground Railway Trail from Mobile, Alabama, up to Lake Michigan. So we kind of went cross-country the skinny way. He was only 10, and he rode on the back of a tandem. Uh, but uh, then a couple years later, uh, we did a Benjamin and I rode a big loop in Washington State, about 700 miles. He was on a single bike then. He did great. In fact, I had a hard time keeping up with really? him. <laughs> yeah. Can you outride him now? Or no, <laughs> no. You know, bicycles all about strength to weight ratio, and mm -hmm. you know he he he, did, he weighs a lot less than I do, and and his muscle mass is way better than mine. So. Yeah. Well, one of my nice memories of you is we we rode together. I rode with you and your family on that Notre Dame to UD, University of Dayton bike ride a few years ago. And it was the one year that you had your whole family with you. So you guys were all on wooden bikes. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was like one of the hits of the of the of all the rides that they've done for Right to Life. And um, it was just a special moment to see how you guys just connected as a family. You, it wasn't just about bike bike riding, but it was a family connection. That was great to see. Yeah, you guys have a tight family, don't you? We do. Yeah, we we tend to like each other. <laughs> so they, uh, yeah, I've got uh, three daughters and a son, and and uh, when whenever we're telling stories, most of the time it's about biking trips and obstacles we had to overcome, and and funny moments, and you know weird sayings and uh, dumb stuff that mom and dad have done, and that kind oh, yeah. of thing. So that's great. Yeah, memories are are, are special. So mm -hmm. for my last question for you, Jay, is. Uh, on on the academic uh, school side, what is your greatest memory or most memorable event from your time at Cedarville University? There's a lot to choose from, but one that really stands out is um, when I was a co-advisor on the solar boat team in 2012. I uh, worked alongside uh, Dr. Tim Dewhurst and Dr. Jerry Brown. Uh, and as uh, well, I'm sure you know, but Cedarville has a, quite a legacy of um, solar boat success. Mm -hmm. Our ambition was to do a solar boat race in the Netherlands. And uh, the route was going to be, they call it the Tour of 11 Cities. Um, basically, it's the same route that they do an ice skating race in the wintertime. So it's through about 200 kilometers through 11 different cities. And it was sort of staged like the Tour de France. Okay. And we worked so hard to get there. Uh, and we had a big disadvantage because we had to ship our boat a month early just to get it there on time. And we showed up and we had a lot of debugging to do. Um, for instance, the steering 
Uh, when we turned right, it would go left. And so we had to, you know, oh, really? yeah. So there were a lot of bugs to work out and it was extremely stressful, um, you know, working so hard. And there's a lot of strategy that goes into solar boat racing um, because you want to get to your destination uh, with almost no power left. You want to use every ounce of power that you have. But if you run out early, that's catastrophic. Right. So you got to really be um a lot of logistics involved. Mm -hmm. And we had two vans and that was really more than we all could handle. So I took about six uh, students and we rode our bicycles uh, and kind of rode along with the boat and offered them some support. And uh, the cycling in the Netherlands is fantastic. I mean, their infrastructure for cycling is better than it is for their cars. It's just phenomenal. And myself, and beautiful, you know, the windmills, just a, every stereotypical thing that you think of in the Netherlands. But it was still very stressful, and there were you know, like thunderstorms and, you know, lots of obstacles to overcome. And every night there was some new technical thing we had to work out on the on the boat. But you got really blessed, and through a series of, you know, miracles and, and hard work, and we ended up on the podium. We ended up in third place, and there were two teams that were ahead of us, but they were professional teams. So we were the first team of uh, the colleges or universities. And uh, just that experience to be on that podium is something like I'd, I've never experienced before. It was just surreal. You know, never in my wildest dreams would I imagine being on a, a, a victory podium in, in Europe. And uh, that's that's how it worked out. Uh, thanks for sharing that story. That is a great story. And uh, thank you for your contribution to the students here at Cedarville. And and most importantly, today, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Cedarville Stories podcast brought to you by Cedarville University. You are encouraged to share, like, and review this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. And be sure to come back next week when we'll hear another Cedarville story for God's glory.